Welcome to the revolution. Hello and welcome to Red Pill Revolution. My name is Austin Adams. Thank you so much for listening today. This is episode number 32 of the Red Pill Revolution podcast. And again, thank you so much for joining me. We have a very interesting show for you guys today. Today's show is going to be all about an update from the Russia-Ukraine war. I feel like it's been a while since we've heard anything about it. It's been a little bit since we've touched on what's actually going on there. So, we're going to go over some some really uh, deep dives into the conversations, and it's all going to be directly from the mouths of the presidents or whatever you want to call them from each country. So we're going to talk about Putin going over why he believes there is currently food shortages, whose fault it is. Meanwhile, while the U.S. is placing blame on the Putin price hike, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin thinks there's a different story to that. Also, we're going to discuss, does Vladimir Putin have cancer and did he potentially survive an assassination attempt? Whoa. All right. Then we're going to talk about Zelensky's recent speech about the war and then Putin's most recent speech about the war. So all of this today is going to be directly from the mouths of the presidents, which are on each side of this war. So we'll get a completely non-biased approach and then we will discuss it. On top of that, we're also going to discuss 80 soldiers at Fort Bragg who have recently died of sudden and unexplained deaths. So many deaths, in fact, that the uh, they basically stopped reporting them over a year ago, June of 2021. Fort Bragg stopped recording these deaths of these soldiers. So all of that and more today. It's going to be a great episode. First thing I need you to do is go ahead and hit that subscribe button. You know the drill. It takes two seconds out of your day to subscribe to the podcast, and it means the world to me. Uh, I work a lot on this podcast for you guys. I work very hard and uh, it gets you some good karma, right? There's not a lot that you can do with just the press of a button that should make you feel all fuzzy inside. And you can do that right now um, by pressing that subscribe button. Leave a five-star review. I would appreciate it so much. Um, thank you. Thank you. Now, the next thing I need you to do is head over to our Substack. Substack um, is redpillrevolution.substack.com. Every single week, there is a podcast companion. It is free of cost, doesn't cost you anything as of now, and you get basically all of the articles, all of the videos, all of the topics that we discuss right there on that Substack directly in your email as well as the video podcast, the uh, audio podcast every single week right to your inbox. How do you beat that? Free of cost. All right, cool, awesome. Now, let's go ahead and jump into it. We have a little bit, uh, changed the format up today. We did a little intro clip. Now let's go ahead and do the full introduction and then we will discuss everything here today. So again, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the revolution. Welcome to Red Pill Revolution. My name is Austin Adams. Red Pill Revolution started out with me realizing everything that I knew, everything that I believed, everything I interpret about my life is through the lens of the information I was spoon-fed as a child. Religion, politics, history, conspiracies, Hollywood, medicine, money, food, all of it. Everything we know was tactfully written 
to influence your decisions and your view on reality by those in power. Now, I'm on a mission. A mission to retrain and re-educate myself to find the true reality of what is behind that curtain. And I'm taking your ass with me. Welcome to the revolution. All right. Again, episode number 20 or 32. Oh my gosh. Episode number 32 of the Red Pill Revolution podcast. So we're going to jump right into it today, guys. The first thing we're going to discuss is the Fort Bragg lost over 80 soldiers from sudden and unexplained causes to a point where they completely stopped reporting the deaths after June of 2021. It's been a full year now where they have not been reporting these deaths. So I'm going to read this article. It says, one of the largest military installations in the world, Fort Bragg, is home to approximately 54,000 military personnel and includes the Special Forces, the Airborne Corps, the Joint Special Forces Operations Command. In just 18 months, Fort Bragg lost over 80 soldiers from sudden and unexplained causes, according to officials. 33 of the fatalities are undetermined causes. Fort Bragg cannot explain why dozens of soldiers are dying in their own bunks. During the same 18-month period, three Fort Bragg soldiers died in overseas combat. Wow. So three soldiers died in the line of duty. In the same time that more than 80 soldiers died unexplained in their beds. Now, I'm not even going to jump into why I think that may be. Let's let the article do the talking, and then we'll discuss it after. But I think that's pretty unbelievable. Three soldiers died overseas in combat at Fort Bragg, which is a special forces base, while 80 soldiers died from unexplained causes. Wow. So it says, this means that soldiers stationed at Fort Bragg are 27 times more likely to die unexpectedly in their homes than they are in overseas combat. Fort Bragg stops reporting the soldiers' deaths after dozens of soldiers are found dead in their bunks. An investigative reporter for Rolling Stones magazine, Seth Harp, has been looking into this medical anomaly. On February 9th of 2022, Seth reported that the death of 83 soldiers at Fort Bragg in the 18 months ending in June 2021. Fort Bragg stopped reporting the fatalities after June 2021, but the body counts continue to rise. Out of the 83 sudden and unexplained fatalities, 11 of them were determined to be from natural causes. Imagine that. The healthiest soldiers in the world, these special forces soldiers at a special forces base. Now, they're not all special forces, obviously, um, but it's a pretty damn healthy base. Uh, 27 times more likely to die unexplainedly in their bunks than from actual combat. Um, so it says that 11 of them were determined to be from natural causes. Harp wrote that Fort Bragg soldiers have been turning up unresponsive in their barracks on a disturbingly regular basis since the beginning of 2020, including Caleb Smither, Terrence Salazar, Jamie Bogger, Joshua Diamond, Matthew Disney, Mikel Rubino, Michael Hamilton, and numerous others who have not been named. Drugs were involved in the deaths of Joshua Diamond and Matthew Disney. The two were found dead on the same day in June 2021, just two weeks after Airborne Master Sergeant Martin Acevedo 
The third was caught trafficking cocaine. Wow, okay. That took a turn. <laughs> Drugs are only a small part of the problem. In January of 2021, Army Captain Robert Latham died suddenly after an apparent heart attack. The 32-year-old was previously in top physical condition. A Green Beret named Calvin Rockward passed away from a sudden and unexplained medical event. The 38-year-old was in excellent physical condition as well. According to Seth, nine more young and fit soldiers were found unresponsive in their bunks. The U.S. Army and Fort Bragg refused to report on the surge in deaths, disrespecting the soldiers and their families. Could there be a serious drug problem going on at Fort Bragg? Could these deaths indicate a surge in suicides and overdoses? The military continues to be assaulted by mandates that harm soldiers physically and mentally. The vaccine mandates damage combat readiness while banishing the strongest, healthiest freedom fighters from the ranks. Now, I think that's interesting to note. Um, the military had a complete and total, uh, any, basically anybody who refused to get vaccinated got thrown out. Now, I personally know of a soldier who literally lost eyesight after being forced to take the vaccine. Um, and then they wouldn't give him an honorable discharge to get out. It's, it, it, it's, it's unbelievable to me the way that our military has been going about this. Now, what I think this has to do with more so even than the vaccine is getting agreeable soldiers. You can find very easily find where party lines lie when you talk about vaccine mandates. It's a weird thing that medical science has to somehow be politicized to the point where, you know, if you're unvaccinated, you're probably laying on one side. And if you're vaccinated, you're probably lying on the other side. Um, sometimes it intermingles. But in this case, a lot of times that holds true. So in the military, if you just do a massive, basically, uh, you know, kicking out of everybody who does not decide to get vaccinated, you're basically kicking out anybody who disagrees with the political ideology of the president who held office or holds office. And I saw a video the other day, it was on TikTok or something, um, where there was literally a, a soldier who was talking and, and saying how he was, uh, he always, he thought he was like going to be the only one who was getting kicked out for not taking the vaccine. And he showed up for his discharge. And uh, unbeknownst to him, there was a huge line of soldiers who were being discharged specifically because of their medical status. Crazy. Crazy. So, this article goes on to say, the military's medical database explodes with a thousand percent increase in medical issues in 2021. Now, you have to realize that our soldiers have to be within a certain age. When I was in, I believe the oldest that you could enlist was about 29. I was 18 when I enlisted. But I believe when I was enlisting, the oldest you could be is 29. Now you can get like a medical waiver up to 39. But you're young, right? You're pretty damn young if you're going into the military. So a thousand percent increase in medical issues in 2021, ex like exactly preceding the time when they did a forced vaccination. Now, it's also interesting to note that you get a bunch of other vaccines when you go into the military. You know, I think this is an interesting conversation. When I went as, when I was in the military, I've literally before I went in the military, I never in my life saw somebody just like pass out, <laughs> like just, just close their eyes and just completely pass out. Now, if you go to any single military parade, like a graduation parade in the military, you're going to see more people pass out in a single parade than you've ever seen in your entire life ever. So 
you know, when you go into the military, any vaccinations that you haven't had, you literally go through a line where they give you dozens, like dozens of vaccines. Um, you know, you get a penicillin shot, which you call the peanut butter shot because it leaves, you know, this big, huge bump in your butt that you got to like rub out on the floor. Um, you get a bunch of bunch of vaccines that they give you and the, they give you a penicillin shot literally for no reason. No reason at all. They give you the shot. <laughs> it makes no sense. Um, but they give it to you. They give you every vaccine that they can think of because to them, you're like livestock. You're a number. And if you cost them money because there's an outbreak of whatever, uh, you know, you're livestock to them. So they just jab, 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 jab you, uh, regardless of what your belief systems are, regardless of any exemptions you think you may hold. Um, and so you literally just see people pass out. I literally caught a dude like we were leaving our tech school. Um, I was in the air traffic control tech tech school at uh, Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. And it was like the first day that we got out of boot camp. And, uh, you know, you're so like just disoriented in these situations. And it's the very first day I walk out of our dorms. We line up in, uh, in our, you know, whatever elements. And uh, I'm at the very front with a guy. Um, and he ended up being the cool dude. But on the very, very first day of tech school, uh, this guy starts marching. And uh, as he's marching, I literally see he starts to march like sideways, like kind of like starts to sway side to side in like a zigzag position. And all of a sudden, this dude's probably like six foot four. 245 pounds and this man just like just like just seizes up his body just stops and he just starts to fall and I actually caught him and like fell to the ground with him luckily uh so he didn't hit his head because I was the uh, the guy next to him um so we were the two tallest in the flight but uh but luckily he you know they tried to say it was like dehydration or something but literally you just left being from getting all of these you know different jabs from all these different things um, so it, it doesn't surprise me that there's a thousand percent increase, especially when it's something like this, you know, specific type, which isn't actually like any of those other ones that we've gotten in the past. So anyways, side note, the military health system began administrating, uh, administering the spike protein mRNA to military service members on December 14th of 2020. Since then, the military has administered more than 6.4 million doses, fully inoculating 90.1% of active duty service members with the two dose protocol. Um, pretty crazy. Now this goes on to ask, now this is not a, this is a little bit of a biased article. So, you know, take this with a grain of salt and read it, uh, about it on your own. Um, but this goes on to say that, uh, what role does the shot have on the number of unexpected and undetermined deaths? Why is Fort Bragg less safe than it was before the mask testing and vaccine mandates? The army is failing to keep soldiers combat ready. And this is evidenced by the military's own medical surveillance system. Defense medical epidemiology database is used to detect surges of injury and illnesses in the military to make sure that all of the individuals are combat ready. The DMED and the armed forces health surveillance branches web-based tool to remotely query de identified active component personnel and medical event data contained within the defense medical surveillance system. Wow. That was a mouthful. In January 2022, attorneys Thomas Renz and Leah Dundas retrieved the DMED data from the military whistleblowers. Dr. Samuel Singeloff, Peter Chambers, and Teresa Long. Um, the data was provided to Senator Ron Johnson at a historic roundtable meeting with doctors and lawyers. According to the data, the five-year average for medical issues in the military was 1.7 million codes. After the jab protocol was mandated on the military, the number of medical issues spiked to 20 Am I reading that right? Wow. 22 million. 22 million from 1.7 million. 
which is a 1,000% increase, over 1,000% increase. Many of the issues are directly related to these jabs, including Bell's palsy, myocardial infraction, pulmonary embolisms, and neurological disorders. One of the military doctors testified, it is my professional opinion that the major increases in incidences of the above discussed instances of miscarriages, cancers, and disease were due to these jabs. Wow. That's terrifying, right? That you can go into a position and, and you're already so uh, you're already so vulnerable. Like when you go to boot camp, when you go to tech school, like they the, the whole point of going to boot camp is so they can literally like diminish your personality to a point where they can mold you to be a soldier, right? So you're already so vulnerable. You're already, you know, have all of these uh, people of authority who are running on a bus screaming at you the second you get into boot camp and you know, you're you're really in this vulnerable position. And so the fact that they're now mandating that you get an experimental medication or experimental drug within the first few days that you're there, leading to a 1,000% increase for young, healthy individuals in medical instances, such as Bell's palsy, myocardial infraction, and pulmonary embolisms, which is terrifying. That's terrifying, right? That's crazy. And we're not even seeing long-term data yet. Right, that thousand percent is literally just the last two years. Has nothing to do with long-term effects of this. Has nothing to do with long-term cancers or you know any of the long-term effects that we're going to see on this. So it's going to be interesting to follow the data. I am not going to give my, you know, I'll go off of this article. I'll let you guys form your own opinion. But it's definitely weird that there's a thousand percent increase here. That's pretty crazy. And uh, obviously, we hope that all of our soldiers are okay and that these medical events tend to go away. But I think it's a overall, you know, when, when there's a, there was also a certain percentage, I, I discussed this in one of my last podcasts where there was, I forget the number, but it was like an overall uh, 80% increase in unexplained deaths for people from the age of 18 to like 38 or something. I forget what the exact statistics were, but it was just overall increases in death by like 80% over the last several years. Um, so truly, truly terrifying. Um, I hope that uh, this kind of, you know, ceases um, moving forward. But anyways, all right. So the next thing we're going to walk through is the Russia and Ukraine war updates. Now, again, how I'm going to do this is I'm going to read verbatim the most recent speeches by both Vladimir Putin and Zelensky. Now, we've had some recent conversations from our White House and our White House press secretary discussing the food shortages. And so I did want to note that the, one of the most recent, one of the most interesting conversations by Vladimir Putin most recently was the conversation that he had surrounding food shortages. But what we're going to go over before we go over that is just some general war updates. All right. So significant updates in the Russia-Ukraine war. So the most recent one is that over 1,000 Ukrainian soldiers who surrendered in Maripol reportedly transferred to Russia for investigation. The second one was that in Chernobyl, radiation detectors around nuclear power plants uh, are back online for the first time since the invasion. Second, the third one is that Russian forces are moving some from, and I'm going to butcher these names of these cities, <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> Russian forces moving from Zaporizhia area to Kherson area to support defense positions threatened by Ukrainian attacks. The next one is about Donbass, Ukrainian defenses holding in Severodonetsk 
despite Russian attacks from three different directions. That's coming from a UK intelligence officer. And it goes on to say that Russian forces renew their offensive northeast of Bekhmut to allow them to reinforce operations in Severon Donetsk and Lysychansk area. Russian troops are continuing their efforts to advance in Solvinsk and Islam area from Lehman. I hope you don't listen to this podcast for my pronunciation of Russian cities because I'm sure I disappointed you there. <laughs> but, but you get the point. Those are the most recent major uh, changes in the actual front of the war. Um, now it goes on to say that Ukrainian President Zelensky claims that Russia is losing an average of 300 troops a day to Ukrainian soldiers. Russia disputes these claims, but does not disclose a figure in response. Russia's foreign ministry claims that Ukraine is losing a significant number and is constantly having to replace units. They estimate losses could be averaging 300 to 400 a day. This number is disputed by Ukrainian President Zelensky, and he says that Ukraine is averaging 100 per day. So they're both, they're both saying that each other is full of shit, yet neither of them wants to give an actual figure, although I guess Zelensky said that it was about 100, whereas Russia estimated it was 300 to 400 soldiers. Uh, so um, according to those claims, you know, do with that information what you will, uh, but that's the most recent quick updates on the actual front of Ukraine. Now, the next thing that we're going to discuss here is Putin's speech on food shortages. All right. Now, I think this one's interesting because he actually talks about a lot of the politics around the world. He brings up the global order. Um, he brings up a lot of interesting points. Um, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But first, the only way that you can support this podcast is by going to my website, redpillrevolution.co.com is for losers. Go to redpillrevolution.co right now. Now, you can support the podcast in a couple ways. The first way is by signing up for life insurance. Right. Everybody's getting all, you know, worried about food shortages. This is this next topic. Right. Get your cans at wherever you get your food from, you know, pickle some asparagus. I don't know what the hell you do. But one thing I do know is every single one of you that's listening to this, I'm sorry to inform you. But at some point or another, you're going to die. You're going to die. It's going to happen to you. I don't know if I'm the first person to tell this to you, but you're going to die. OK, eventually. I don't know if it's today. I hope it's not today. I hope it's in the far, far, far distant future. But when you do die, I want your family to not despise you for all of the financial debt that you left them with. So you can head over to redpillrevolution.co. You can click a little button there that says get a quote. I got offered $63 a month for a $2 million policy. Imagine how much your wife, how much your husband would sing praises of love to you after you died in a terrible, horrific situation if you at least didn't leave them with a bunch of debt. All right, so head over there right now. You can also go to the bottom of the website and you can sign up and subscribe to uh, donate. So again, I appreciate you so much. That is the only way that I am able to continue this podcast and uh, doing what I do. So thank you so much for considering it. Redpillrevolution.co and hit that subscribe button right now. If you didn't do it the first time, I forgive you. But if you listen to this and you don't do it the second time, I might not. All right, now <laughs> that's all I got. All right, so now what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Putin's speech on the food shortages, all right? So um, this was a back-and-forth conversation uh, with somebody who I don't know who they are, but his name is Pavel uh, Zarubin, and he says to Vladimir Putin, he says, Mr. President, we have just followed your meeting with the head of Singal, 
who is also the current leader of the African Union. He expressed, and actually in the past week, many countries have expressed concern, not so much about the food crisis, but they are afraid of large-scale famine because world food prices are climbing and so are oil and gas prices. These issues are interrelated. Naturally, the West blames Russia for this too. What is the real situation at this point? How is it developing? And what do you think will happen in the food and energy markets? Okay, what a great question. I think that was phrased very well. And Vladimir Putin begins to respond. Now, um, the way that Vladimir Putin responds is he says, yes, indeed, we are seeing attempts to place the responsibility on Russia for developments in the global food market and the growing problems there. I must say that this is another attempt to pin the blame on somebody else. But why? First, the situation with the global, global food market did not become worse yesterday or even with the launch of Russia's special military operation in Donbass in Ukraine. The situation took a downturn in February 2020 during the efforts to counter the coronavirus pandemic when the global economy was down and had to be revived. The financial and economic authorities in the United States, of all things, found nothing better than to allocate large amounts of money to support the population and certain businesses and economic sectors. We generally did almost the same thing, but I assure you that we are much, we were much more accurate and the results are obvious. We did this selectively and got desired results without affecting macroeconomic indicators, including excessive inflation growth. The situation was quite different in the United States. The money supply in the United States grew by 5.9 trillion in less than two years. From February 2020 to the end of 2021, unprecedented productivity of the money printing machines. The total cash supply grew by 38.5%. 38.6, I'm sorry. Apparently, the U.S. financial authorities believed the dollar was a global currency and it would spread, as usual, as it did in previous years. Would dissolve in the global economy and the United States would not even feel it. But that did not happen. Not this time, Vladimir Putin said. As a matter of fact, decent people, and there are such people in the United States, <laughs> the Secretary of the Treasury recently said they had made a mistake. So it was a mistake made by the U.S. financial and economic authorities. It had nothing to do with Russia's actions in Ukraine. It is totally unrelated, Vladimir Putin says. And that was the first step, and a big one, towards the current unfavorable food market situation, because in the first place, food prices immediately went up. They grew. This is the first reason, he says. The second reason was European countries' short-sighted policies and, above all, the European Commission's policy in regard to energy. We see what is going on there. Personally, I, as in Vladimir Putin, believe that many political players in the United States and Europe have been taking advantage of people's natural concerns about the climate, climate change, and they began to promote this green agenda, including the energy sector. So now he's pointing to the way that our government and political system is politicizing, you know, global warming or whatever they call it now. Okay? It all seems fine except for the unqualified and groundless recommendations about what needs to be done in the energy sector. The capabilities of alternative types of energy are overestimated. Solar, wind, any other types and hydrogen power, those are good prospects for the future, probably. But today, they cannot be produced in the required amount, with the required quality, 
and at acceptable prices. And at the same time, Vladimir Putin says, they began to belittle the importance of conventional types of energy, including, and above all, hydrocarbons. What was the result of this, he says? Banks stopped issuing loans because they were under pressure. Insurance companies stopped insuring deals. Local authorities stopped allocating plots of land for expanding production and reduced the construction of special transports, including pipelines. All this led to a shortage of investment in the world energy sector and price hikes as a result. The wind was not as strong as expected during the past year. Winter dragged on and prices instantly soared. On top of all of that, the Europeans did not listen to our persistent requests to preserve long-term contracts for the delivery of natural gas to European countries. They started to wind them down. Many are still valid. Now we have a couple paragraphs last on this portion. Many are still valid, but they started winding them down. This had a negative effect on the European energy market. The prices went up. Russia has absolutely nothing to do with this. Now it's interesting how, you know, thought out this conversation has been, you know, what he's pointed to so far was the shutting down of pipelines, the printing of 38.6% of our overall currency, as well as the uh, downturn of uh, contracts sent out and loans being sent to energy companies, um, all causing this rise in global prices and food shortages. Now it says that, but as soon as gas prices started going up, fertilizer Prices followed suit because gas is used to produce some of these fertilizers. Everything is interconnected. As soon as fertilizers prices started growing, many businesses, including those in European countries, became unprofitable and started shutting down altogether, Putin said. The amount of fertilizer in the world market took a dive and prices soared dramatically, much of the surprise, much to the surprise of many European politicians. However, we warned them about this, and this is not linked to Russia's military operation in Donbass in any way. This has nothing to do with it. But when we launched our operation, our so-called European and American partners started taking steps that aggravated the situation in both the food and fertilizer production markets. By the way, Russia accounts for 25% of the fertilizer market. As for potash fertilizers, now this is a translation from somewhere. Um, so there's probably a little bit of funky little verbiage here. When it comes to potash fertilizers, Russia and Belarus account for 45% of the world markets. This is a tremendous amount. The crop yield depends on the quantity of fertilizers put into the soil. As soon as it became clear that our fertilizers would not be in the world market, prices instantly soared on both fertilizers and food products. Because there are no fertilizers, it is impossible to produce the required amount of agricultural products. One thing leads to another, and Russia has nothing to do with it, Putin says. Our partners made a host of mistakes themselves, and now they are looking for someone to blame. Of course, Russia is the most suitable candidate in this respect. Okay, so that is Vladimir Putin's uh, opinion as to why we are potentially running into food shortages, why our gas prices are soaring um, to the point where, you know, <laughs> everybody's starting an OnlyFans, you know, and showing themselves, you know, I'm going to start an OnlyFans and literally just go to the gas pump and just, you know, metaphorically get fucked there. <laughs> Maybe people will fund my uh, gas adventures that way. If I start at OnlyFans where you literally just go to the gas station and show yourself at the gas pump. <laughs> 
it, it probably suits the platform. Um, anyways. So I thought that's interesting. He, he went pretty in depth there around the macroeconomics as to why he believes we're having an energy crisis, why he believes gas prices are soaring, um, at least on this side of the world, and why these potential famine conversations are coming up. Okay. Um, now he pointed to a lot of things there, right? The fertilizer market is an interesting one. It's not one that, you know, I've heard anybody discuss surrounding this. Um, the energy crisis regarding, um, you know, uh, the way that he explained it about wind, solar, um, and all of the other ways that we're looking to kind of expand on these, you know, the electric market for electric vehicles. Yeah, that's all fine. But even if we, you know, literally everybody got an electric vehicle at this point, where where's that power coming from? Where is the electricity coming from? Because what I saw was there was a, uh, I believe it was a senator was getting questions surrounding uh, where, you know, she was like boasting about how, a certain percentage or somebody, you know, like basically started with electric vehicles. And after being questioned, they found that the only way that they're able to actually supply enough energy for the electricity for these vehicles was through coal. <laughs> like natural gas, like what? It's just trading one thing for the other. Only that what's actually happening here is our politicians have gotten so balls deep invested into these energy companies and into the, you know, the battery companies who are over mining in Afghanistan and all of these other lithium rich places. Um, they've, they're so balls deep in investing into these companies that they need this to work. They have so much millions of dollars. Pelosi probably has, you know, a, a Epstein Island under some of these lithium companies and needs to make her money, right? Needs to get her, her, uh, her profits out of it. So what they're doing is they're trying to pass as many policies. They're trying to, you know, in my opinion, there's a, a, an inflation of prices for gas and it could potentially even be, uh, um, intentional at this point because they have so much money invested in these electric vehicle car markets working that now they want to force your hand, right? They even talked about uh, giving like a $25,000 subsidy or tax write-off or something to people to purchase an electric vehicle. I think that was in one of the legislative, uh, something that they were, one of the bills that they were trying to pass. It was like sneakily like positioned on page 36,074 or something um, where they were going to give, you know, subsidies to people to pay for an electric vehicle. Now, when they do that, right, they pull out of um, you know, they pull out of Afghanistan suddenly, very intentionally, they pull out of Afghanistan, one of the most lithium rich countries in the world, only to have immediately the Taliban doing a deal with China for the lithium deposits. Hmm. Oh, and also all of our politicians are in some way, shape or form or another invested into electric vehicles working out, and your gas vehicle going away. I don't know. Who am I? I'm sure none of this is interconnected. <laughs> All right, so the next thing and the next topic that we're going to discuss here is Vladimir Putin. So this is an article from, I believe it's Newsweek, New York Post. All right, the New York Post says, Vladimir Putin has cancer and likely survived an assassination attempt. And that is from a U.S. intelligence analyst. It goes on to say that the U.S. intelligence community believes that Russian President Vladimir Putin's health is suffering and that he is being treated for cancer. The assessment attributed to Newsweek 
was attributed to high-ranking officials at three separate intelligence agencies and comes months after speculation that the Russian strongman is suffering from terminal ailments. Putin is definitely sick, an official from the office of the Director of National Intelligence told the outlet, while noting whether he's going to die soon is mere speculation. Two other officials, one from the Defense Intelligence Agency and one retired Air Force officer, also claim to have access to a comprehensive intelligence assessment of Putin's health and said the outlook for the Russian leader is bleak, according to the report. Now, one thing that a few people have noted, I think I even heard Joe Rogan talk about it, was that um, recently you've seen pictures of Vladimir Putin and his face looks like almost inflated, like um, like he has some type of anemia um, or like, uh, right, anemia? No, that's not the word. Is that the word? Anemia. I don't know. Water. I think it's anemia. Let's look it up. Am I wrong? Hmm. It's like uh, when water starts to like, uh, anemia is defined as a low number of red blood cells. I was completely wrong. What is it when your body's holding water? What's the word? Tell me. Anybody? Anybody? No? All right. Well, water retention. 40 types. uh, We're not going to find it. Moving on. All right. So he's holding water, right? Hypertension. That's wrong. Hypertension is high blood pressure. <laughs> All right. Um, so Putin's grip is strong. Uh, the intelligence community also reports and believes that Putin is increasingly paranoid about his hold of power and that he may have survived an assassination attempt in March. Putin's grip is strong, but no longer absolute, said one senior intelligence officer. He says the jockeying inside the Kremlin has never been more intense during his rule. Everyone's sensing that the end is near. The officials also warned that Putin, as Putin has become increasingly isolated, access to credible intelligence has also become more difficult to obtain. One source of our best intelligence, which is contact with outsiders, largely dried up as a result of the Ukrainian war. The senior DIA official said, noting that as Putin has fewer meetings with foreign leaders, there are fewer opportunities to learn about his condition. Goes on to say that we need to be mindful of the influence of wishful thinking, the retired Air Force leader said. Still, the sources said that following televised appearance in April, in which the Russian leader was seen awkwardly gripping a table while meeting with his defense minister, the intelligence community told the White House that Putin was ill and most likely dying. Well, those are two completely different things. You know, being ill and dying. I don't know. Kind of separate. Rumors of Putin's immense demise have been reported since the early days of his invasion of Ukraine. In early April, Russia investigative journalism outlet The Project reported that Putin was quite ill and had been receiving regular visits from a noted Russian oncologist. That account was followed by multiple reports, some from Telegram channels supposedly aligned with Kremlin dissidents, that the ex-KGB man was due to undergo various surgeries or was looking for a potential successor. Regardless of Putin's health, the DIA official warned against underestimating the Russian president. He is still very dangerous, and chaos does lie ahead if he does die. We need to focus on that and be ready. Interesting. Um, So, apparently, not only is he dodging cancer, but he's also dodging assassination attempts. (laughs) I wish we got more information on either of those, Um, but I don't know. 
Um, I, I think that, you know, there's been a lot of talks about this. There's been a lot of people who believe that uh, Vladimir Putin has been sick for a while now. There was actually a whole report that I saw that looked at all of his absences. So like all of the time frames um, that he had been uh, basically out of the public eye for extended periods of time and the actual logs of who was coming and going from seeing him during those times. And a lot of them noted that uh, Russian oncologist. Um, so interesting. And it does even speak to the fact that what would happen if he did die, right? That would obviously cause a huge power vacuum um, and then would cause, you know, a, a big power struggle, especially during this time of war. That would, I don't know. I don't know. Um, so, and then another thing is the assassination attempt. I've heard some crazy wild stories about assassination attempts, not only assassination attempts on Vladimir Putin, but also on uh, him <laughs> assassinating other people. There was a, a, a report surrounding the fact that um, if you were an official at the table of the negotiations on behalf of your president for Ukraine or Russia, you are actually just as likely to die as a soldier on the front lines. There was like three or four assassinations of officials who were at the table of negotiations um, during uh, underneath both Putin and Zelensky. Um, so that sounds terrifying. I don't want to be assassinated. <laughs> it sounds like there's been several attempts on him and uh, he also uh, potentially has cancer. Time will tell, um, you know, maybe he's gotten better. Maybe that oncologist helped. And maybe he's no longer dealing with it. But what I do know is if you go back and look at some of the pictures of him from before and now you see that water retention um, on his face, which happens when you start to take uh, some of those medications for that water retention. Um, so anyways, moving on. Now, what we're going to read now is going to be uh, actually Zelensky's speech on the war. And then we're going to discuss Putin's speech on the war. Okay. Now, uh, Zelensky's speech is kind of hype. <laughs> he starts it with like a big like, you know, Ukrainians. This was on June 8th. So roughly five days ago. This is what Zelensky said regarding the war. He said, Ukrainians, all of our defenders, exactly 10 years ago, this day marked the start of Euro 2012, the European football championships, which brought together all Ukrainians in Poles, Ukrainians, and the vast majority of Europeans. The opening ceremony was in Warsaw. The final ceremony was in our capital, in Kiev. The matches were hosted in different cities of our two countries, and in particular in Donetsk and the Donbass area. Only 10 years have passed, and it seems that that was another world. Just today, the occupiers announced the absolutely crazy news that they are preparing to unite some football clubs from all occupied territories into one pseudo-championship from Donetsk, Kursk, Melopol, Crimea, and even part of Georgia. It's just a mockery of the occupiers over people who remember everything well. Ten years ago, our Donetsk was a strong, proud, and developed city, and the Russians came, uh, and then Russia came, brought ideas of just... Uh, of just such an inadequate level, and now it is a ghost town that has lost most people, thousands of lives, and absolutely all prospects. Only the return of Ukraine, which will definitely happen, only our flag, and only Ukrainian law will mean a normal life for these territories, for these cities, again. The life that was there, peaceful, 
safe, and open to the world. And of course, new matches of world-class teams at the Donbass Arena. Now, he must have been like speaking at an actual event or something at some, you know, a soccer arena. Um, I am grateful to President of Poland, a friend of the Ukrainians, for the fact that he has now started a special trip to European countries to support the European prospect of our country. This June, we are going to get a decision on the candidacy. Now, he's speaking on of them joining the European Union, which would eventually lead to potential ties um, for the UN, which is the whole reason that Putin said that he started this war in the first place was that he did not want Ukraine to become a part of the UN. Now, if Ukraine becomes a part of the UN, then what happens? Well, then there's a treaty. And I would assume that we would have other countries going to war on Ukraine's behalf based on that treaty. So that's what he's speaking to right now. It says President of Slovakia... Zuzana Kapitova was to go with Andrzej. Such a joint initiative of the two leaders was planned. A positive COVID-19 test hindered it. Well, these are the conditions of our life now. I spoke today as the German Chancellor of Scholz about the decision in favor of Ukraine or the candidacy as well, which in fact will be a decision in favor of Europe. We talked about defense support and about food security guaranteeing, which is really a global interest already, because no one can be interested except the Russian state in the global food crisis. I address today the participants of the investment contract or conference organized to discuss the economic prospects of our state. Representatives of the world's largest funds were among the participants. Although the event was not public, it was still very important and powerful. I invited them to invest in Ukraine. Invest. Invest with, you know, large weaponry, tanks, uh, you know, fighter jets. It is very important for me, <laughs> that, that was me speaking, not Zelensky. Um, it is very important for me to see such an audience. And these, I emphasize again, are representative of the most influential part of American business. Believes that these sanctions against Russia should be strengthened. Therefore, it would be right for politicians to hear this position. Leading business and the majority of American and European societies that there is still not enough pressure on the Ukrainian Federation to end this war. According to the results of this day, the 105th day of the full-scale war, um, Severodonetsk remains the epicenter of the confrontation in Donbass. We defend our positions inflict, and inflict significant losses on the enemy. This is a very fierce battle, very difficult, probably one of the most difficult throughout the war. I am grateful to everyone who defends this direction. In many ways, the fate of our Donbass is being decided there. I also designed decrees on awarding our heroes. 285 combatants were awarded state awards and 68 of them posthumously. Eternal memory to all who gave their lives for Ukraine. Eternal glory to our heroes who defend the state. Glory to Ukraine. I can't imagine being in like a fist fight at a bar. <laughs> and, and while I'm getting like punched in the face... Uh, you know, looking to the big guy in the corner and like being like, hey, hey, you know, <laughs> maybe, uh, I don't know, focus on what's going on there instead of, you know, calling on us to put in financial sanctions. And even more interesting was a speech that uh, Zelensky gave during the uh, during the World Economic Forum. Yeah, it was about two and a half weeks ago, so a little bit before this speech. Um, but he was basically making a cry out to the World Economic Forum and all these global leaders. 
to basically get in on the fight, saying it's a global issue, that they're, if you think that they're going to stop it, Ukraine, you're wrong. And if it's me, you know, potentially you're next and, you know, um, this whole deal. I don't know. So we'll move on. The next thing that we'll discuss is Putin's speech on the war. And it will be interesting to see kind of the differences in approaches. Now, um, where Putin was speaking was at a national event, like a parade, kind of like our Memorial Day, where it was surrounding the soldiers who had lost their lives in war. And I believe this was in like some huge stadium. Um, And so uh, you'll hear some of his conversations surrounding that. This was a little bit earlier, but this is the most recent conversation from Putin that I can find was on May 9th of 2022. And I've looked through every transcript of every conversation that he has available over the last month and a half. So this is the most recent conversation that he had was during this like Memorial Day type ceremony on May 9th. He mentions NATO. He mentions the United States. He mentions um, he mentions the United States several times. Um, He mentions how they're, you know, boasting and claiming their own exceptionalism and how uh, basically how the West seems to want to cancel their old traditional values and cultures. Um, So we'll talk about that right now. So he says on May 9th of 2022, Putin goes on to say, we take pride in the unconquered, courageous generations of the victors. We are proud of being their successors, and it is our duty to preserve the memory of those who defeated Nazism and entrusted us being vigilant and doing everything to thwart the horror of another global war. Now, side note, that is an interesting thing that Putin has talked about this entire time, is the comparison between Germany during World War II and the Nazism and Nazifying of um, the you know Donbass region and specifically the Azov regime. Now, you can go online right now. If you're listening to this, your ass has an internet connection. <laughs> and you can Google or don't Google. Go to Brave Browser and use search.brave um, and look up the Azov Battalion, the Azov regime. And you can see pictures upon pictures upon pictures of them flaunting a Nazi flag. Flaunting a Nazi flag. Okay, now this is the same people that Facebook decided to change their policies against about several months ago, two to three months ago. Facebook originally did not allow positive speech, did not allow support of the Razov regime because they're Nazis in some way, shape, or form. Okay, or at least they support Nazi principles and have Nazi symbolism all over them and their flags. So Facebook did not allow support of the Azov regime. Two to three months ago, they changed their policies quietly in the dead of the night to allow support for the Azov regime, allow support for a literal Nazi party. Okay, so this is a verifiable claim from Putin saying and making these comparisons to the Nazi Germany of World War II when there is the Azov regime touting Nazi flags all over. All over you can find those pictures, okay? So, just wanted to throw that out there. He's not just frivolously throwing out claims of they're Nazis, you know, like uh, Antifa likes to do about everybody that they disagree with. There's legitimate Nazis in Ukraine. 
Okay. So just wanted to point that out. It's not just, he's just not throwing things out there. It's, there's legitimate claims here. Okay. So he goes on to say, therefore, despite all controversies in international relations, Russia has always advocated the establishment of an equal and indivisible security system, which is critically needed for the entire international community. Last December, we proposed signing a treaty on the security guarantees. Russia urged the West to hold an honest dialogue and search for meaningful and compromising solutions and to take account of each other's interests. All in vain. NATO countries did not want to heed to us, which means they had totally different plans, and we saw it. Putin went on to say, another punitive operation in Donbass, an invasion of our historic lands, including Crimea, was openly in the making. Okay, now, I'll repeat that. He says that another punitive operation in Donbass, an invasion of our historic land, speaking of the former Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, Donbass and that portion of Ukraine was a part of the Soviet Union prior. Okay, so another punitive operation in Donbass, an invasion of our historic lands, including Crimea, was openly in the making. Kiev declared that it could attain nuclear weapons. The NATO bloc launched an active military buildup on the territories adjacent to us. Thus, an absolutely unacceptable threat to us was steadily being created right on our borders, Putin said. There was every indication that a clash with neo-Nazis and Banderites backed by the United States and their minions was unavoidable. That's a big claim, okay? United States-backed neo-Nazis, which is literally what it is if the United States is sending weapons and sending money, like, you know, the $66 billion that we've sent to Ukraine so far, $66 billion, which as I talked about before, would equal 100 and, or I'm sorry, of the, would equal $640,000 almost to each one of the 106,000 elementary schools to help with security measures, just to give you the idea of what $66 billion actually looks like, okay? That's what we've been sending to these organizations, to Ukraine, right? Just a blank check. Let me repeat. We saw the military infrastructure, Putin goes on to say, being built up. Hundreds of foreign advisors starting work and regular supplies of cutting-edge weaponry being delivered from NATO countries. The threat grew Every day. Russia, locked, lo Russia launched a preemptive strike at the aggression. It was a forced, timely, and the only correct decision. A decision by a sovereign, strong, and independent country. The United States began claiming their exceptionalism, particularly after the collapse of the Soviet Union, thus denigrating not just the entire world, but also their satellites, who have to pretend not to see anything and to obediently put up with it. But we are a different country. Russia has a different character. We will never give up our love for our motherland, Putin says. Our faith and traditional values, our ancestors' customs, and respect for all people and cultures. Meanwhile, the West seems to be set to cancel these millennia-old values, 
Such moral degradation underlies the cynical falsifications of World War II history, escalating Russiaphobia, praising traitors, mocking their victims' memories, and crossing out the courage of those who won the victory through suffering. We are aware that U.S. veterans who wanted to come to the parade in Moscow were actually forbidden to do so. But I want them to know, we are proud of your deeds and your contribution to our common victory, speaking about World War II. We honor all soldiers of the Allied armies, the Americans, the English, the French, resistance fighters, brave soldiers, and partisans in China. All of those who defeated Nazism and militarism. Okay. There you have it. There is Zelensky's speech. There is Putin's speech. Both the most recent conversations surrounding the war. Now, they're both painting very, very different pictures. Right? If we try and like break this down to a very simplistic approach of why each one is saying you know, why this happened is right now, if you go back to the very, very first podcast I did about this, when this all broke out, I read Putin's original speech. And in his original speech, he mentioned the United States 11 times without mentioning Ukraine a single time, which again, and then following it with the fact that Russia is a, one of the biggest nuclear powers in the world and is unafraid of using it. Okay, mention the United States 11 times. Okay, if that doesn't concern you, you're not paying close enough attention, right? Especially with the escalating conversations around Taiwan, which escalated even more today. And you know what? I'll even touch on that because I think that's interesting and uh, notable to have a conversation surround. But first, I do think it's interesting. I, I do think that there's a reason to kind of just super simplistically highlight why. Okay, Russia is saying that Ukraine was building up its infrastructure backed by the United States and by NATO and the UN to eventually invade, right? At least that's what it sounded like, okay? So he believes that they were putting, now people have compared it to this. Imagine if Mexico did a deal with China and allowed China to put rockets and nuclear uh, missiles and all of this military infrastructure right along the borders of Mexico and right on the borders of Canada. Okay. That starts to look a little weird, right? Would we allow that is another question. Okay. So he was saying that they were starting to build up these, uh, this infrastructure for potential war against Russia. Russia goes on to say that if they became a part of the UN, then they would be a, a potential immediate threat to Russia, which is why they, decided to go in preemptively, okay? Now, Ukraine is saying that they're just completely innocent, that they have nothing to do with this, and that for some reason, big, mean Putin decided to just jump into their land and start, you know, killing their soldiers. So, who's right? I'm not going to say. Time will tell. History will tell. Generally written by the person who wins the wars, okay? But what I do know is that Things are escalating fast, right? I, 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 it's also kind of weird to me that there's really not much conversation surrounding what is actually going on in the day-to-day, -day, right? If you don't follow any specific channels to follow the war, you're really not seeing it much. At least I'm not. At least not what we were at the very beginning of this, right? When the big, like, 
mass, uh, you know, um, exodus of, uh, profile pictures from liberal Facebook profiles <laughs> went, went from I'm, you know, vaccinated to a Ukraine flag. Um, you know, so around that same, same time, uh, all this information started to come out about why the war was happening, about what was going on there and all these, you know, all this, uh, huge, crazy propaganda from the ghost of Kiev to, uh, the Ukrainian father crying into his daughter's arms which we found out was all fake. Uh, but we haven't seen much, right? At least I haven't. I don't know. I follow some channels on this, and that's kind of where I got some of this information. Um, but if you don't follow those same channels, I think you're really not getting it in the mainstream. Um, it, it's, it's pretty wild that something can just massively take over the collective unconscious of all of the United States at a single time and then just literally fizzle away the second that, uh, you know, a decently attractive couple gets into some type of, you know, legal battle on public television. <laughs> and speaking of, the January 6th uh, meetings have been happening recently. And uh, what, what ended up happening there that was interesting is that Nancy Pelosi hired a former uh, director or executive of some, like, I think it was like ABC or somebody, News um, to try and make their January 6th committee situation like this big production, like thinking it was going to catch on like the Amber Heard situation. I haven't heard anything from it so far. Uh, one thing I did hear was Attorney General William Barr speaking a little bit about 2,000 mules where he kind of diminished it uh, from a certain perspective, um, saying that, you know, you could have gotten the cell phone data from anywhere, which I think is interesting, something for you to look into. Uh, but the last topic that we'll discuss here today is going to be the escalating tensions with China and the U.S. today. So it says that the U.S. Secretary of Defense and Chinese Defense Minister issued dueling statements after holding their first face-to-face -face meeting. This comes after China's Defense Minister told U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin that China would go to war over Taiwan if independence is declared. In a rare press conference, Defense Minister said, we will re resolutely crush any attempt to pursue Taiwan independence. Let me make this clear. If anybody dares to secede Taiwan from China, we will not hesitate to fight. We will fight at all costs, and we will fight to the very end. I want to make clear to those seeking Taiwan independence and those behind them, the pursuit of Taiwan independence is a dead end. Secretary, Secretary Lloyd Austin spoke to the press shortly after Defense Minister Fengi and said, maintaining peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait isn't just a U.S. interest. It's a matter of international, secure, er, international concern. Let me be clear. We do not seek confrontation or conflict, and we do not seek a new Cold War. We will defend our interests without flinching. And then there's this video that you can actually watch of him, like, going off. Um, I don't know if we can hear it here, but um, the, the, the top uh, comment on here says, well, one of the top comments says, uh, somebody get the Chinese defense minister a joint. Man needs to chill out. <laughs> the next one says, all over the world, we are seeing echoes of the 1930s. History doesn't repeat, but it def definitely rhymes. Quite interesting, right? That is a that is a really powerful statement. Uh, 
you know, immediately following, you know, saying that anybody who's addressing their independence or their secession from China, I don't know, if you go back and look at any of the history books that we have from, you know, the time I was in school, Taiwan's always been a separate country, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I can remember. They've been a country. It's not like they're seceding from China. Taiwan has literally never been a part of China in our history. Okay, now they're trying to take this approach and gaslight their people just the same way that, you know, some people are saying that Putin is doing that about Ukraine. Oh, well, this is ours. It's always been ours. And they're just trying to act like they're somebody else's. Um, And if you fuck with us, we're going to go to war with you. I don't know. But I I do think that it's quite concerning seeing all these tensions escalating. We've never seen a hot war in my lifetime. That's the, the scale of this, at least not openly. Right. It's You know, we've seen. Many, many bombs dropped by the United States specifically over the last several uh, decades, Um, but nothing that was an actual declaration of war against a sovereign nation. Um, So it's concerning. I'll keep saying that it's concerning, you know, because all of a sudden China gets involved and goes after Taiwan. Then the United States steps in, then Europe steps in, and then it's just this domino effect of large-scale war that has the potential to break out very quickly, very quickly. And now we see our Secretary of Defense and the Defense Minister of China uh, battling back and forth with their words surrounding war. So, to me, it's concerning. Um, I, I... you know, as far as the Taiwan and China situation, it's very clear cut. It's very clear cut what's happening here. And then the situation of Putin and Ukraine, it's very clear cut there. Ukraine was its own country, right? I'm not taking sides on any of this. Ukraine was its own country. Maybe don't invade people. If you're Ukraine, maybe don't, you know, have allied treaties with countries who are going to piss off one of the greatest superpowers immediately next door to you and potentially risk getting into a war. Oh, and maybe don't be a Nazi. Maybe that's a good starting point. Don't be a Nazi. So that's what I have for you guys. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Um, If you have any other uh, things you want to discuss, go ahead and leave a a comment. You can find me on TikTok. You can find me on Instagram, Truth Social, wherever the hell you're at. At Red Pill Revolt is where you can find me. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you took something out of this conversation. I know we have not been hearing a lot about this lately. Um, So I just wanted to do a quick update. We will jump into more topics. We'll expand here. Um, I think the next few topics we'll have, I have written out, are pretty awesome. So make sure you stay tuned. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. Uh, Again, head over to redpillrevolution.co. If you didn't hear me already, .com is for losers. Redpillrevolution.co. Go ahead and get yourself some life insurance because you're going to die and you don't want your family to hate you. Um, Go ahead and support the podcast by becoming a monthly subscriber. Uh, This is something I spend a lot, a lot of my time on. I have a full-time job. um, I have a business. I have uh, children. I have a family. I have a life outside of this, but I still find the time at 10 o'clock at night, five in the morning, one in the morning to get this stuff done for you. And it would mean the world to me. The best thing you can do is head over to redpillrevolution.co, click on the link, get yourself some life insurance. Like I said, I got a $2 million policy for $60 a month, right? Now, if I die, I think my wife will be sad, but I think she'll be a little less sad if she has $2 million in the bank. (laughs) So maybe you might want to think about that. 
redpillrevolution.co. Click the link, get yourself some life insurance. It takes, it's super fast, 95% approval ratings. Um, you don't have to speak to anybody, right? I come from an insurance background, like yours, a different life of mine. I was, I owned an insurance agency and, um, when you usually go get life insurance, it's like the, the shittiest thing in the world. You put your information in online, you you know, you get like 30 calls from a bunch of people trying to lie to you and sell you shit. This doesn't do any of that. My recommendation, if you don't know anything about insurance, get a um, get a 15-year term life policy. Don't do any of that whole life bullshit. They're just trying to take your money. 15-year term life policy at 15 times um, your income, okay, per year. All right, that should be enough. All right, thank you guys so much. Thank you for listening and welcome to the revolution. Have a great day.